as we have considered the birth of Christ this month, we began with the subject of the place of his birth. How God, in that subject, within that subject, describes for us in his word how God became a man to rule supremely. Then secondly, we, dis we discovered and studied about the peculiarity of his birth. He was born of a virgin. He is the only one of all who have been born into the human race to have thus been born of a virgin. And that quickly leads into what we'll study today, the purpose of his birth. We first have to understand from the teaching of the scripture that he was born of a virgin before then we can understand the purpose of his birth. What we're going to do is just going to go through scriptures uh, today and explain how the teaching of those various texts are applied to you and me with regard to the virgin birth of Christ and the purpose of his birth. So if you can, you can try to keep up with all these slides here. Acts chapter 26. Well, actually, it's Acts 17, beginning of verse 26. Then he made of every nation of man, of men, one, of one. Now, I'll tell you this. Sitting over there with my iPad, reviewing my slides, I noticed that I made some mistakes in uh, the spelling. I'll tell you why. I had... Theological journals, I had medical journals. And the more I read, the more excited I got. And I was just in my translation typing away. Uh, and unfortunately, there are keys that you really have to poke hard to get the letter out. And some of them I didn't poke hard enough. I have, I have great fear and reverential awe of the Word of God. And it pangs me when I didn't go back and review enough to know that I left something misspelled. So just forgive me on that and know that the Greek, of course, is absolutely infallible. That's the main one anyway. Then he made of every nation of men of one. Now your translation, and the word blood is not in there. Uh, it could, you could say of, of one man or, but is of one. You and I have descended from one physically. Every nation, he has made every nation of one. He made then of one every nation, that is of men, every nation came from one. We are descended from one. It is true to say 
within the context of the, of the verse, in the stricter reading, you could say of one blood. Because we all come from Adam. Now in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, the three elements of a man are introduced. First, there was the dirt. That's the physical body. The second is the introduction of breath, which is the same word as spirit. So God spirited man. And when that happened, a third element was produced, which is the soul. And man became a living being. He became a living soul. Nefesh is the, the Hebrew word. And the essence of his existence began. So we keep that in mind. There was body. Then there was spirit directly from God. And then there was soul. So we all have that. But we're going to see something that happened when man was spirited and immediately was soulish, became a soul. To dwell upon the face of the earth, having determined the appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation to seek God, if perhaps they might feel or grope about or palpate for God and might find him. And indeed... He is not far from each of us. Now, this is part of a sermon that uh, Paul is delivering on Mars Hill, Areopagus, to the Areopagites, the 30 purportedly most intelligent men in the world. It was a, an exclusive and elite club of scholars in that day, Greek scholars. They knew everything, they thought, about everything. And so thinking that Paul was introducing a new god... He was caused to go to Mars Hill. I've been there. I've stood there. Mars Hill is a little higher than the Acropolis. That's, of course, where they worshipped Athena. Athena. If you'd stood there on Mars Hill in Paul's day, you would have seen worshippers to Athena in line as far as you could see. And they would walk through the Parthenon and they would worship this goddess. And so Paul is against the backdrop in Athens of, of their greatest worship. And so he's talking about the true and living God, and this is just a part of the context here. But he explains, inspired by God, that all men everywhere have descended from one. That is, of course, Adam. We all are in Adam. And then he sent us upon all the face of the earth. And God has determined the, the epochs of man, the, the, appointed, uh, the appointed times, uh, the specific times and boundaries of our habitation. It's because God is accomplishing his will and his purpose. To see God 
if perhaps they grope after him and might find him. Indeed, he is not far from each of us. This is something I never heard. The point here in the purpose of the birth of Christ is to note that all of mankind, all of us are in Adam. We all have descended from Adam. We all have the blood of Adam pulsing through our veins. We are all of the fallen nature of Adam. All of us. That's something to be thought about when we study the blood that appeared when spirit from God, breath, the spirit, the breath of God joined the clay of the earth and man became a soul. He lived. He had emotions. He had awareness. Soul is self-awareness. Spirit is God-awareness. The flesh, the clay, that's, that's body awareness and surroundings awareness. But now to have self-awareness, I'm alive, I live, I have emotions. For the soul life of the flesh is in the blood. This is in Leviticus 17. And I've therefore given it to you to be placed upon the altar to atone for your souls, for it is the blood that atones for the soul. The essence of existence comes to be when blood flows through our veins. Blood flows to every part of our bodies. It goes everywhere. And God uniquely made blood to give us life and to sustain us in our existence. It is special. It is distinct in what it does. And the life of our flesh, the essential existence of our flesh, and really in the Hebrew over here, I have it highlighted, nefesh. It's the same word in, as in Genesis 2, 7. The soul of the flesh, the life, the existence of the flesh is in the blood. May I say, if you drained yourself of all of your blood, you would not have an essential existence anymore physically. It just wouldn't be there. There would be nothing to keep you alive because in physical life, the essence of life is the pulsating of blood through our veins. Our blood needs to be moving and it needs to be alive and thus gives us life. So the declaration in the time of the Hebrew sacrifices was this. It is the blood that atones for the soul. For regarding the soul or the life of all flesh, its blood is in its soul. And I said to the sons of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any flesh for the soul of any flesh is its blood and all who eat it shall be cut off. You can't consume the essential existence of another. Now that moves us then to the teaching in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14. We saw this last time. Since therefore also the children have partaken of blood 
and of flesh. Okay, remember there are two Greek words here. For those of all of the children of men who are in Adam, for all of us who have a fallen nature, we all, we all partake, Kukununikin, top line there, all of the children have partaken of blood and flesh, but Christ, Metesken, Christ took part of it, but not all of it. The blood. The blood is created. Okay, all right. Let's take the human race. 20, what do we have? 46 chromosomes? All right. Teacher. 23 are provided by each of the parent, each parent. 23 and 23. They come together. 46 chromosomes. And the fetus begins its physical existence. And within the fetus, it has been discovered that the fetus creates its own blood. The mother doesn't create the blood of the fetus. The father doesn't create the blood of the fetus. The fetus creates it somehow in the marvel of conception. God has so made it. And matter of fact, here we go. The blood, the, the bloods of mother and child in a normal pregnancy are never mixed. Let me read you some exciting things that I've studied this week from medical textbooks. You won't be able to contain yourself. Howell's Textbook of Physiology, second edition, pages 885 and 886. For the purpose of understanding its general functions, it is sufficient to recall that the placenta consists essentially of vascular chorionic papillae from the fetus, that is the unborn child, bathed in the large blood spaces of the decidual membrane of the mother. The fetal and maternal blood do not come into actual contact. They are separated from each other by the walls of the fetal blood vessels and are epithelial lessers, layers of the chorionic villi. I'll bet you didn't know that. <laughs> but that's not all. It gets better. From William's Practice of Obstetrics, 3rd edition, page 133. The fetal blood in the vessels of the chorionic villi at no time gains access to the maternal blood in the intervillous spaces, being separated from one another by the double layer of chorionic epithelium. Page 136 of the same textbook. Normally there is no communication between the fetal blood and the maternal blood. Now from the nurse's handbook of obstetrics written by Louis, Lu, Louise Zabriskie, 5th edition, page 75. When the circulation of the blood begins in the embryo, it remains separate and distinct from that of the mother. 
All food and waste material which are interchanged between the embryo and the mother must pass through the blood vessel walls from one circulation to another to the other because they're separate. Page 82 of the same book. The fetus receives its nourishment and oxygen from the mother's blood into its own through the medium of the placenta. The fetal heart pumps blood through the arteries of the umbilical cord into the placental vessels which looping in and out of the uterine tissue, sorry about that, and lying in close contact with the uterine vessels permit a diffusion through their walls of waste products from child to mother and of nourishment and oxygen from mother to child. As it has been said, this interchange is affected by the process of osmosis. And there is no direct mingling of the two blood currents. In other words, no maternal blood actually flows to the fetus, nor is there any direct fetal blood flow to the mother. There will be a test at the end of this I don't want you to just take my word for it. The baby in the womb produces his own blood. It's not the mother's blood. It's not the father's blood. It is its own blood. Now think of the virgin birth. And the divine preparation of an unblemished lamb that would be offered in payment for our sins. Nobody else could do that. Only one who, having been born of the woman, the virgin, who produced his own blood, thus could be separate from the nature, the sin nature of man. The fallen nature of man. We're taught in Hebrews. He took part of it. Not all of it. Metaskin. So that through his death, his death, he might destroy the one holding then the power of death. That is the devil. He's the only one who could do that. Uniquely qualified as the virgin born Christ apart from the sin nature of man because the essence of his life was in his blood which is perfect blood unblemished unspotted absolutely perfect illustrated by so-called unblemished animals in the Old Testament. But only illustrated. But it came into reality in the person of the Christ. Now 1 Peter 1, beginning in verse 17. And if you call on him as father, the one judging impartially according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during your sojourn, knowing that you were not redeemed from your futile manner of life, handed down from your fathers with perishable things by silver or by gold, 
a sin nature handed down to me from my fathers. But you were redeemed by the precious blood as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, the blood of Christ. No wonder the apostle said we preach Christ and him crucified. He had to spill his blood, perfect blood, sinless blood to save us. And only the one divinely conceived, the virgin born Christ, could so do such a thing. First Peter continues, Indeed, having been foreknown before the foundation of the world, but having been revealed in the last times for your sake, who by him believe in God, the one having raised him up out from the dead and having given him glory, so that your faith and hope are to be in God. This redemption is unique to Christ whose blood is unique, whose essential existence is unique because he's the only one who has ever come into the human family apart from the nature of sin, virgin-born Christ. Now we go to Hebrews chapter 9 and beginning in verse 13. We have a couple of sections here. For if the blood of goats and of bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those having been defiled sanctify them for the purification of the flesh, how much more the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, will purify our conscience from dead works in order to serve the living God. Now down to verse 23. It was necessary then indeed for the representations of these things, of the things in heavens, in the heavens, to be purified. But the heavenly things with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered into, I made up my own language, entered into holy places made by hands, copies of the true ones, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. My Savior, my Redeemer, Lamb of God, there in my behalf, in the presence of God, keeping me saved. Hebrews moves on into chapter 7 and chapter 7 talks about his high priesthood standing there in our behalf and in our place. But we're not going to look at Hebrews chapter 7 today. Now to 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7 and then verse 9. However, if we walk in the light as he is in the light... We have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just 
to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And how are we cleansed? Verse 7, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. God became a man, thus to be the final king of kings and lord of lords declared in the place of his birth. In the incarnation, God the Son was born of a virgin, uniquely qualified, a man, the God-man, born of a woman into this world, apart from the nature of sin. No one can ever claim that but the Christ of God. Born apart from the nature of sin, producing his own blood, <laughs> proven to be true by science itself. Sinless, wonderful, unblemished blood. That in the offering of himself on the cross, he would cleanse us from all sin. He only had to do that once. And it was sufficient. The power of regeneration, the power of spiritual rebirth, the power of the salvation that comes from God is a salvation that is eternal. It is eternal salvation. It came forth from the heart of God before the foundation of the world. It works itself out. It is so profound that even the fall of man that affected the whole universe could not stand in the way of our absolute salvation and redemption because of the blood of Christ. And he only had to die once. Listen, you are saved and saved forever. Forever. Sometimes people get sensitive in, in times of sin and they feel like they never were saved or, or need to be saved all over again. It isn't according to your power that you are saved. It is according to the power of the Son of God whose blood was shed for those who are in Him. Man, who can undo that blood? Who can cause that blood at a later point in your life to be a tad imperfect, imperfect so that this thing has to go all over again? Does Christ have to come back being born of a virgin again to die on the cross again? Of course not. Once and forever. That's why he cleanses us from passes. Hamartias, all sin. Now finally, we go to the revelation. I mean, we're at the end of the book. We're at the end of the story of man. And these things in the revelation, they haven't happened yet, but the story's already been told. 
In the Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, in the introduction to the one loving us and releasing us from our sins through his blood. John is the last living apostle. The privilege of the consummation of the age and its description was given to him. Write these things, the angel said. He saw it and he wrote it. In the spirit of the Lord's day, and he begins to describe the glorified Christ. And he makes, he makes his introduction praising Christ to the one loving us and releasing us from our sins through his blood. There is no other way. No other way. Now we go to chapter 12 and verse 11. There is a group of saints after the rapture of the church and before the resurrection of Israel who come from every tribe, tongue, kindred, and nation in the 70th seven-year period designed for Israel and they are slaughtered in a wholesale fashion by the Antichrist under the direction of the serpent, the dragon, because of their faith. Tribulation saints is what we'd call them. And they overcame him by reason of the blood of the Lamb and by reason of the word of their testimony. They testified to Christ whose blood is the blood of the Lamb. How many times in the final book of the Bible is the great glorified Christ referred to as the Lamb? Because if he had not become the lamb, we could not be saved. We have only one redeemer. Only one. Uniquely qualified. Only one. Only the virgin born Christ. And only his blood can atone for our sins. There is no other way. And it's that way all the way through the book. What then is the reason for his birth? That as the Lamb of God, prepared from before the foundation of the world, would take his perfect self without sin nature, and his unblemished, spotless blood and die for me 
He was sacrificed. The perfect Lamb of God was sacrificed for my sin and for me. My blood is tainted. My nature is fallen. I am a sinner without hope except in Jesus Christ. There is no other. He was God born to be a man, to demonstrate his power, to be born into the, into the race of man from a virgin, uniquely qualified with an unfallen nature and perfect unblemished blood to die for my sin and save me. He is the Lamb of God who took away my sin. This is the reason, this is the purpose of his birth. The place of his birth, the peculiarity of his birth, the purpose of his birth. We're going to have a very sweet service, God willing, next Sunday, the Christmas day. We're only going to have a 10 a.m. service, nothing else all day. We're going to meet here as a family on Christmas day. And we will complete our thoughts on the birth of Christ with the proclamation of his birth. Glory to God in the highest Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he came into this world to save sinners. As we exit this service, there will be deacons and their wives in rooms right across the hall as you leave. You'll see them. And they're there to pray with you if you would come to Christ today. Maybe already as a Christian, you would like to come and be a part of Shiloh. We need you. You share that. They'll take care of all of the details on that. Church membership. For now, let's stand prayerfully all over this room and we'll be dismissed in prayer.